everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book three of The Dark Tower, The Wastelands, chapter five, Bridge and City. Let's start the show. All right. Bridge and City starts with our adventurers heading to the town of Ludd. After finding a Nazi airplane from our world, they cross a bridge into Ludd. But Jake is kidnapped by Gasher, a diseased pirate. Then the group does what every good dungeon master tells you not to do. They split up the group. Roland and Oi go after Jake, who is being led by Gasher to an underground lair run by the TikTok man, a really bad dude. Meanwhile, Susanna and Eddie look for Blaine and have their own adventures with the residents of Ludd. There's lots of fast-paced action and surprises that await our crew. Jay, this is our big sort of action-packed sequence for this book. Um, 120-plus pages of of goodness running around, gunslinging by our heroes, people in danger, riddles to be had, so much going on. And we're not going to talk about a lot of the plotty stuff because we've got smart readers who can figure all that out. We're going to jump into what was something that stood out for both of us, and that's there's a lot of connections to the stand here. Um, We've talked a little bit before about how Stephen King's work does some crossovers uh, throughout, especially the Dark Tower makes appearances throughout. But there was a lot in this chapter that reminded me of the stand. I agree. I mean, he wrote the stand before he wrote this for sure, but I don't remember what the the time span is between finishing the stand and and starting this book. Do you happen to know? Well, the, the so that's interesting because the first edition of the stand came out in 1978, I think. But I'm wondering mm-hmm. if the revised edition of the stand was on his mind because it came out right around this time. Um, yeah, it was like a so 1991 if, release, I believe. Right. So, you know, I'm sure it was in his head as he was is as he was writing this. And so I wonder if that was part of it or not, but there's a lot of things that that we we could talk through. You know, in the stand there's a scene that creeps me out to this day when Larry Underwood tries to get out of New York City and he has to go through the Holland Tunnel or is it a different tunnel? It's either that or the Lincoln Tunnel. Yeah, I think it might be the Holland Tunnel, but but you know, he has to escape the city getting out uh, through this tunnel that has all these dead bodies in it and is dark and freaked out. Now, our adventurers here need to get into the town, into the city, and they do that by crossing this bridge uh, that's reminiscent of bridges into New York City. And, you know, they had already seen that it was starting to teeter and and they're worried about it. And Eddie has this vertigo piece that the he's- The closer like, they got to the bridge, the more rickety it seemed <laughs> and unsafe. Yeah. And and so they're worried about that. Oi has no problem with it, but almost knocks Eddie down as he's trying to cross the bridge. And Jake seems to be having fun. But they're so concerned about the bridge, that's when, when uh, Gasher is able to, to grab Jake. But we've already also had the connections to the stand because Eddie thinks, hey, maybe there's going to be help inside the city for us. I mean, it reminded me of Boulder, how you know they have this idea that they're going to restart Boulder with 
the engineers putting the putting on the power and and you know reforming a civilization and you know Eddie's all excited about hey we're coming to a big city and this feels like home and and maybe we're going to do that so there's a couple of instances that reminded me of the stand yeah that whole restarting the city thing i i would definitely be in in that camp i would i was definitely <laughs> cheering for those those folks in the stand and uh i was right there with Eddie saying there's got to be some good stuff here. Even if there are no friendly people, there's got to be some technology that we can just pick up and use because the the people who live there now don't remember how to use it or don't yep. understand it. But I just came from modern day New York. I should be able to be able, you know flip a few breaker switches or get a, a motor running or maybe get this car, this broken down car started and we can drive to the tower, you know? I'm definitely on board with that. I was even thinking they should be able to upgrade Susanna's uh, wheelchair or something, right? Yeah, sure, or right. I, w- I was being like really hopeful and thinking maybe they could find some sort of like robotic prosthesis or, for Susanna that could give her the ability to walk and stand and run that, you know, this is some futuristic high-tech city where they... You know, have uh, nuclear power cells and stuff. Why not have uh, Luke Skywalker type artificial limbs? That would have been cool. Or, or maybe even fingers for Roland. Oh, I didn't <laughs> even think of that. <laughs> He'd be even faster than he ever was before. <laughs> maybe we could put bionic eyes on them too, so they could see further. Ooh, that would cost six million dollars. No, 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 no. But of course, the big revelation and connection to the stand comes towards the end of this chapter. Um, there's this weird spot where we start talking to Andrew, and we're like, "Who's Andrew? <laughs> Who the heck is Andrew?" <laughs> it's it's one of the first times, other than with some of the minor characters in book two, where we were in the pharmacist's head for a little bit, or we were in some of the cops' heads for a little bit. But those were only one or two pages. Here, all of a sudden, we're in a secondary character named Andrew, and we're not anywhere near anywhere where Roland or Eddie or Susanna or Jake are. It's, you know, they've already left mm-hmm. that place. And it turns out that Andrew is the TikTok man who Jake has shot, and he thinks he has killed, and Roland doesn't go back to check the body. You always go back and check the body, Roland. <laughs> and shoot it twice more in the head. <laughs> right. Uh, but we get this sort of background on Andrew, and then all of a sudden, we get somebody with the initials RF who comes and talks to him. Where have we seen those initials before? Richard Fannin, a grinning apparition who who talks in a real sort of folksy way to Andrew and and says, "Hey, I've got a I've got a job for you." Sounds very familiar, and it's very reminiscent of when. Randall Flagg in the stand goes and picks up the trash can man, um, which again, right. Andrew here is the TikTok man. We've got the similarities in names even. Yeah, I, I thought that that was kind of an interesting overlap with we've got trash can man, TikTok man. It's like they, they both end in the word, same word. It's both like kind of a three word moniker. And also, I'm still not sure about this and is... uh. Fannin slash flag is this the same person that we've known as the man in black or is this yet another supernatural creature that roland needs to deal with we don't know but 
this this character is much more like the Randall Flag in the stand than the Man in Black ever was. So that's evidence that maybe they're not the same, because the you know the the hands without fingerprints and the the way that he's able to turn uh, on a like he doesn't have that. I don't know. The Man in Black seemed to be like laughing at a joke all the time that nobody else knew. This guy seems much more menacing and perhaps more powerful, but it could just be he's got a different agenda. So I don't know. Although he, I mean, he does laugh. I mean, he says, I'm a man of many handles, partner. And the TikTok heard laughter lurking just below the surface. And he says, I've yeah. also, I've been called the ageless stranger. And then later on, he says, call me Fannin, the grinning apparition said, Richard Fannin. Well, that's not exactly right, maybe, but I reckon it's close enough for government work. So I still get that sense of menacing laughter underneath this. And as our mm -hmm. good good friend and constant listener, Heathen King, has reminded us, it's always Randall Flagg, right? Every time there's a bad guy in Stephen King, it always comes yeah. back to Flagg. So I think it might not be spoiling too much to say that Randall Flagg and Richard Fannin here are definitely the same person. And they're probably related to the man in black in some way that's yet yeah. to be fully spelled out. Speaking of uh, the Fanon character, I was, I don't even know how to describe my reaction. It was just kind of nonplussed, I suppose. But when he seemed to have this complete meta awareness of the narrative of the book itself, when he was encouraging TikTok man to, you know, get past his injuries and his pain and focus, he's like, come on, bear and bone, key and rose. Day and night, time and tide, enough. Let's get going here. And he's calling out the names of the chapters of the book. I know. These are not things that anybody has said in the story. Why would he know this? Why would he say this? And I don't even know what to make of that. No, that is weird. It's very odd and a good catch by you to to notice that. Because it doesn't it isn't related to anything specific. You know, it's you know, he's just saying, Will you help me to the TikTok man? And and the TikTok man doesn't know. He's like, I don't know. And he's like, I don't know, but I feel this urge to do something. And that that quote that you just said is when it comes. It, it is it is very freaky. And of course, Fannin gets uh, Andrew, the the uh, TikTok man, to say my life for you, which again is something that Randall Flagg gets uh, the trash can man to say over and over again in. Uh, in the stand, my life for you, my life for you. And it's a similar situation. If I remember right. right, the trash can man is in jail when when Flag rescues him. So he's he's about to die of starvation and dehydration in a jail because he's locked in and everybody else has died of the flu. And mm -hmm. Flag is able to mystically get him out of that jail and on the account of if you can help me, then I'll help you. And same sort of right. thing here with TikTok man. Like you're dying, you've just been shot in the head. And the city's about to go, but I can help you. I can make the pain go away. Oh, and by the way, I can bring it back anytime I feel like it. So <laughs> stay in line. So it's good because I think after the man in black was sort of dealt with in book one, we haven't had a good nemesis for our crew, sort of an ongoing nemesis, right? Book two was mostly about obstacles that were in the way for the drawing of the three, but there was no one who was... The, the real obstacles there was Roland's sickness, Roland's illness, and Detta, 
her other personality, mm-hmm. but there was in, you know, Balazar to some extent, but these were just sort of minor pieces. There was no sort of mini boss like there is, uh, if you're thinking about this in video game terms of, of, of the man in black. Um, in this book, we get three of them. We get the TikTok man who seems fairly formidable. He almost seems as quick or quicker than Roland as he uses the knife to kill one of his cronies and and yep. you know he's sort of on top of of Jake in, in an instant, and Jake's startled by how fast he is. We get a reappearance of this potential man in black, but definitely Fanon, who does seem creepy and a good nemesis. And then, of course, we get Blaine as well, who's um, even the little bit that we see him in this chapter. He seems like he's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and don't forget about Gasher. I mean, Gasher himself is even though he's this uh, man at the end of a long, painful, deadly illness still seems to be able to outpace Jake on the run. He knows his way around the, the city, like the back of his hand, and he is the, a constant threat to Jake and to Roland, really, because he's uh, uh, he's setting traps or leaving traps in his in his path. So I think if, if Gasher, and Gasher keeps saying, if TikTok man hadn't told me to un, to leave you unharmed, you would be dead. I would have just killed you by now. Yep. Although, uh, in terms of scale, he still doesn't measure anywhere near the level of TikTok Man or or Fanon, and definitely not Blaine. But Gasher is, because he's so unpredictable and, and he is at the end of his life, that's oftentimes the most dangerous person, right? Somebody who has nothing to lose. Yes. Yeah, and Roland recognizes that better and faster than any of the other people in the in the group. Yep. So we get a couple of interesting character developments here. Um, we'll, we'll run through a couple quickly and then spend a little bit more time on on one of them in particular. Uh, you know, earlier in the book, we had this whole, will Roland save Jake? And, you know, Roland's always constantly worried like, oh, yes, maybe. But if the tower calls, maybe I'll let him go again. But um, mm-hmm. Jake puts his faith in Roland here. You know, when Gasher kidnaps him, he has a grenade and he goes willingly with Gasher. Um, in order, because he knows Roland will come save him, and he's right. He's that faith is well met. Roland right. does, in fact, come after him, and um, what's interesting is, and Roland's able to save him. Although Roland's able, to, you know, he's sort of willing to put Oi at risk to do so, and you know, even thinks like, "Eh, Oi might not make this, but I'm going to rescue Jake." And they have this this plan that that does work. Yeah, I, I think uh, Roland was a bit more. Sure that Oi was going to die in his planning. He this was a repeat of his use of David to win yeah. his test of manhood uh, against Court. Uh, maybe it's something that Roland, you know, he sees. Uh, he's weighing out his his options here. He's like uh, sacrifice Oi to save Jake. That seems like a worthy sacrifice. Sacrifice Oi for no reason. No, he wouldn't do that. Yep. And he was really counting on Oi's special talents like he every time every time roland like kind of hoped for more than oi had des- had displayed he was pleasantly surprised that mm-hmm. oi was even more intelligent and more capable than he could th- than any billy bumbler he'd ever witnessed before so we already know there's something special about this particular billy bumbler and the fact that they've even talked about him being part of the quartet and therefore having part of that psychic link and having the same goals and caring for each other and being important to each other in a way that just the average person passing by wouldn't. Yes. It makes you wonder that with enough training and time with Roland, could Oi become a gunslinger as well? 
Maybe. <laughs> he, he's a pretty fierce uh, attack uh, attack animal when he <laughs> goes against a TikTok man. Uh, so our, our, our newly crowned gunslingers have a rite of passage in this chapter in that they kill with the guns for the first time. You know, they've had their moments against Shardik and the minor robots at the beginning of the beam. But this is the first time mm-hmm. that they've faced down a human threat or what's mutant mutanty type human threat, whatever the what's ever left in the city of Lud. There's a, a dwarf that's coming after them and Susanna re- recognizes the threat immediately as, hey, this is something bad. He pulls out a grenade and they're able to to shoot him. And then on their way to get to Blaine, they need to shoot a few more of this menacing mob that's coming after them. Yeah, they're the pubes, They're the right? pubes, right. And so they're able to kill for the first time. And you can say, sense that there's this is a change in, in those two characters as well. Yeah, it's not easy for either of them. But at the same time, they don't hesitate when it needs to happen. Yeah. And by the time they're done with the killing and then they're in the cradle of Lud, then they have new problems to worry about. So they the story hasn't even given them a chance to just reflect on the fact that they have killed in a meaningful way, at least. Yeah. And then sort of the character piece that we wanted to spend a little bit more time on, and we've hinted at this a little bit already, but um, Susanna and her agency or lack thereof, um, we've talked a little bit before about how it's very clear what Roland wants to do, You get to the tower. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that Eddie has this transition over the last couple of books where he's become a tower junkie. Yeah. But then we get to Susanna. Yeah, when we don't really know what Susanna's motivations are, we're told that she has fallen in love with Eddie, that they consider themselves to be married, but we don't know that she cares about the tower. We've never we've never gotten that directly told to us. But one of the things that I've been struggling with up to this point with Susanna is there's this magical moment when Roland used the magic of the door to merge and Odetta into this new third person that we're calling Susanna. But it seems like every time Susanna has to do some dirty work, whether it's shooting pubes or being raped by a demon in a speaking circle to distract the demon from whatever her companions are doing, Detta Walker comes to Mm -hmm. the front. Or even when they had to solve Blaine's riddle, it's like, oh, Detta was the one who was good at math. So I don't feel like Susanna is truly a unified singular person. I feel like she is still this sort of like, I don't know, like like a magic eight ball or something where you shake it and then like whichever Detta or Odetta floats to the top is the personality that you get to interact with in that moment. And the only thing that really seems to have changed is that Detta is no longer a threat to her companions and that this person can choose which of these two personalities to sort of lean on or rely upon at any given time. But I feel like King is really kind of selling her short here. I feel like we don't get any character growth. We don't get any character arc. There's no real development from what she was before to what she is now, except that she was two personalities and now it's one. And then we just switch between them. It's not like, you know, because Eddie doesn't revert to being a heroin junkie every time a, a crappy situation comes up. He embraces his new gunslinger status and, and, and deals with it. So why why does it when uh, Susanna needs to 
deal with a gunslinger situation, she turns into Debbie. Yep. And I feel like that's kind of a, a cop out. I, I would agree because the whole point of of the end of the drawing of the three was to integrate those personalities. And it's not like they call Odetta forward. Like there's never an instance where like, mm -hmm. oh, we need Odetta's calm and kindness. You know, Susanna already embodies that. It's like, why can't Susanna embody the character traits of Detta? Why does she need to move into that other personality? And it's, it's, it's very much that. I, I think you pulled out a quote where it says, in a very real sense, Susanna Dean was no longer even here. It was Detta Walker in the chair now, and her eyes were glittering. So there is this almost yeah. transformation. You know, it's not just the language and the actions. It's this whole, the person seems to change throughout that. And it's like, why can't Susanna be that? And I don't know if Eddie does it, but Roland acknowledges this directly. When there's a, a when they were getting ready to deal with the demon, he said, "We're going to need Detta." You know, like basically, stop pretending you're this other nice person and just revert back to what you used to be before your two personalities were merged into one. And I don't, I don't think that makes sense, and I don't think it's fair to the character. And there's another passage in the this section of the book where Susanna is saying to Eddie, I started loving you because you set me free of Detta Walker. And then she says, it goes further than that. I started loving you because you set me free of both of those bitches. One was a foul mouth cock teasing thief and the other was a self-righteous pompous prig. Comes down to six of one and half a dozen of the other as far as I'm concerned. I like Susanna Dean better than either one and you were the one who set me free. That's a wonderful thing. I would, you know, I love that she says this to Eddie and I love that she has realized this about herself, but I don't think it's an accurate description of what happens with her character right. in the book because she is not free of either of those personalities. It seems like Detta keeps showing up left and right. So is she free of both of those bitches? I don't think so. Maybe that will change over time. Maybe the, this king hasn't worked out the kinks of this character yet. I don't know. Um, but I'm frustrated with how he's handling her up to this point. I wonder how much of it is, is it King not understanding disassociative identity disorder? Is it that it makes it, or secondarily, is it that this makes it more obvious to the reader what's happening and how she's able to draw on this? I, I don't know, but you're right. It, it feels clunky um, and it doesn't seem fair to the character of Susanna. Who already is getting, I believe, short shrift yeah. in the books from a character perspective. You know, we always get Roland's perspective. We're in Jake's head a lot and we're in Eddie's head an awful lot. And it's rare mm -hmm. that we get in Susanna's head. Um, it's just for little bits and pieces at a time. It happens, but it's not extended pieces like it is for those other characters. There's yet to been big talks about why are we doing this? And Eddie and Roland have had like three or four of those already about like, Here's what this means. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why I feel the way I do and what we're going to what this all means and together and Susanna's always asleep during those or off to the side or out of earshot and it's like it would be nice to hear her perspective on this and what's motivating her other than her love for Eddie to continue with this. Yeah. And that seems to be her, her primary and almost singular motivation. Like she wants to protect herself, she wants to protect Eddie. Um she seems to you know, be very fond of Jake, so she doesn't want Jake to yep. be hurt. And I think she has a a deep uh, admiration for Roland now, like as she's gotten to know him more, and especially after that time in Rivers Crossing. In River Crossing, 
she got to see a side of him that really kind of woke her up to what Roland is when he's not gunning people down. And yeah, it seems like the most time we spend inside Susanna's head is when King becomes a sloppy narrator and just <laughs> jumps all yes. over the place with who who's thinking now. And um, <laughs> so it's just like he sneaks in a little bit of like, oh, let's get Susanna's perspective on this because it wouldn't make sense for Roland to say right. this line. And it's interesting. I, I'm, I, you know, she's a very interesting and unique character overall. You know, she's got multiple personalities. She's african-american she's from an entirely different time than we're used to so i think there's a lot of potential with this character and it just feels like king could be doing more with her and as we yeah. said before there's a whole book called the song of Susanna coming up so i would imagine we're going to spend a lot of time with her at that point i hope so i hope so all right well let's move on to our next topic and that is the topic of riddles so um we start to get an idea in this chapter um as blaine talks about riddles that, hey, there's a reason that that other book that Jake picked up in that bookstore was all about riddles and why we had a big section early on where Eddie, or I'm sorry, where Roland talked about what it was like growing up in Gilead and how they had this riddle contest. And it's all coming to a head and it, it wasn't just King just talking to talk, but it was, there was a reason for all these riddles. So I put a poll up on Twitter earlier this week and asked our readers and listeners what happens when they encounter a riddle? Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. So, so I, I had a couple answers up there. So, we, you do as a reader, do you stop and think about the riddle and try to figure out, hey, what what does this mean? And let me see if I can figure it out before the characters. Uh, do you just keep reading and say, hey, King will tell me in a couple pages, hopefully, and I'll figure it out then. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other answers I had were. Hey, I already know the answers because I've read these books multiple times. What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> and it, in our unscientific small sample size poll, we had about 40% who stop and think through the riddles, 40% uh, who keep on reading and just, hey, want to get to the answer. I fall into that category, of course, because I can't, I can't be stopped once I'm reading a Stephen King book. <laughs> and then 20% uh, of our respondents said that they know the answer from reading before. Where do you fall in that group, Jay? Well, I guess technically I have to fall into the last category because I've read these books before. But if I were to pretend I this was my first time through, I think I would, I think I would uh, stop and think for a little while. But I probably wouldn't linger until I figured it out. Yeah, I definitely did not. Part of that is because I'm impatient, and part of it is because some of these riddles seemed a little more difficult. That I was like, ah, I'm sure King will tell them to me in a, in, a, in a minute or two. So. Are they going to stump Blaine by uh, asking what's in their pocket? <laughs> so early on in this chapter, one of the things that, that, you know, they're talking about the different riddles and Eddie doesn't like riddles. It seems like he just wants to make off-color jokes and Roland gets really upset because he's like, those aren't riddles. <laughs> and you can see the tension mm -hmm. between those two. Um, and I think Roland calls back like he's just like Cuthbert. He doesn't take anything seriously. And, you, you know, they, they talk yeah. about that. But um, one of the things I wondered about is some of these riddles they talk about. I think one was the strawberry was the answer to the to the one riddle. And Suzanne is able to figure it out. And Roland's like, oh, yeah, I think we're on the same track, although we don't have strawberries. We call them such and such. And it made me think, like, mm -hmm. a lot of these riddles are pun-based or word-based. And again, we've talked a little bit about this, you know, but like the, the, when is a door not a door? And it's when it's a jar. And 
you really have to know like that's just a way that the language works and yeah that only makes sense in english because a jar is another way of saying open and right. etc you know so so do these homophones homonyms work all the time in roland's language and you know i think that that's another one where we've talked through before about how how come he doesn't understand tuna fish and he has to say tutor fish and i just wonder if he would know all these jokes blaine on the other hand when we get to him and and his riddles it does seem like blaine has knowledge of both our world as well as midworld so that might not stump him as much as it might somebody who doesn't have an understanding of the language but yeah it seems like blaine knows kind of everything <laughs> which doesn't bode well for our heroes but we, we'll get to we'll get into yeah. that in the next chapter but uh <laughs> right it's interesting to think about that because so many uh, just the riddles that are used as examples in this book are and some of them are in the the chapter that comes next but they do rely on things like the a jar you know it it only works in english yep. it, like if you translated these riddles into french they wouldn't make any sense anymore they wouldn't be solvable they would be nonsense so if you translate them into whatever the high speech is then well, what are we talking right. about here um i think that's a valid critique but i think in in the structure of the the story we're just all we're all just sticking to one language anyway Although I wonder what happens if you were to read the French translation of this book. Is the door not a door thing? Is that just like, huh? You're like, what, well, the, what, what does that it, mean? It brings back and, you know, we're going to have a 30-second spoiler here for Game of Thrones. So if you have not watched Game of Thrones and have any desire to shut your ears for, you know, hit the 15-second advance button a couple times. But the whole hold the door thing, right? Hold the door doesn't make sense in a lot of other languages. I think that they had problems with that as they translated it into Spanish and French. Like mm. th that recognition and light bulb moment for us wasn't probably the same as it was in other languages. Huh. I wonder if they changed what Hodor said <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I don't think they did because nobody knew those first few seasons. <laughs> That's true. So, so he's saying Hodor in German, and then all of a sudden. I don't know any other languages to know what they would sound like to make it happen, but yeah. <laughs> All right. We're done with the spoilers for those of you who have now returned. The riddles are a fun part of this, and it's interesting because we've talked before about how for someone who is a gunslinger, oftentimes Roland has to use other skills besides his guns to get around problems. Um, and it seems like these riddles are going to be another one of those. In fact, he has to do some bluffing with Blaine to get them out of the situation they're in to even get to Blaine by saying, hey, we've got what you want. Um, if, you, mm -hmm. if you Don't kill us, because if you kill us, all these riddles are going to die with you, including the ones in, in Jake's book, and you'll never know them. Yeah. I mean, Roland gives us a little bit of his backstory and builds out the mythology around the importance of riddles in his, you know, in his childhood. And he tells the story about his teacher, Venet, who was always the the character in Roland's past who was wise beyond measure, like he seemed to just have this deep insight into how the world and universe works, even in a time when nobody really understood those things anymore. And Venet uh, uh, assessed Roland as um, that he was okay at riddles, but Venet said it was because Roland thought too deeply. <laughs> and Roland's father said that it was because he had too little imagination, and he agrees with both of them. And but he thinks his father was a little bit closer 
to the problem. And uh, Roland says, I could always haul a gun faster than any of my mates and shoot straighter, but I've never been much good at thinking around corners. And then Susanna, in one of her rare moments <laughs> of direct uh, address in the narrative, think, um, who had watched closely as Roland dealt with the old people of River Crossing, thought the gunslinger was underrating himself, but she said yep. nothing. And my immediate thought was this was, finally, how many times have I been saying that Roland and those around him have underestimated his intellect? Roland is apparently a very smart person. He couldn't have gotten this far and dealt with all of the people he's dealt with and just done the whole gunslinger thing without having some brains yep. in his head. And yeah, maybe his biggest strength is always going to be pulling a trigger. It's not a huge step down for how smart he is. And he just, I don't know, it, maybe he doesn't have this like deep imagination or something so that he comes across as a little, as like not super smart. But I think the intelligence is there and it's, it's, it's there to be seen in everything he does and how he interacts with the world and the people around him. So I don't get why he keeps getting criticized and undersold with his intelligence because when when he goes up against the people of river crossing it, it's he's clearly good at what he does even if even when that what he's doing is being a diplomat yep. or just uh, somebody to bring comfort to the the general citizenry and yeah so i don't know it was just a, a moment of vindication for me and in, in my my constant <laughs> haranguing of of Roland's uh, misinterpretation of his own abilities. And, and we get a couple more examples of that in this chapter. You know, he he's able to detect the traps that are in the maze mm -hmm. without setting them off. You know, one, once I think is sort of lucky and, and, but, and, you know, but he's able to figure out what's going on and um, he's able to strategize with Oi a way to rescue Jake. Um, he's not just a brute with a gun, you know, blazing in he he's got this and then even after the gunfight with the tiktok man and the others he's able to bluff or at least negotiate enough with blaine to get them out of that situation as well so there's definitely a lot of instances in this chapter where he's not just a gun right so our last big topic that i wanted to touch on and i don't know if you've noticed this as well but for all of roland's trying to save the multiverse by getting to the tower, there seems to be a lot of destruction that follows him along the way. So it he goes, sure is. So you know, in the first book, he goes to Tall, and Tall is just he has to wipe it out. You know, it, and basically, those people would have gone on living if he hadn't shown up. But because of the Man in Black's trap, you know, Tall is utterly destroyed, and everyone's killed. It's not entirely his fault because the man in black had to sprinkle his magic into that that scene. But all Roland wanted to do was stop for a night and get a cheeseburger. And the next thing you know, he's got to kill every man, woman, and child in the town. Yep. In New York, you know, the poor pharmacist pharmacy gets shot up and blown away. And there's sort of this, the, the drug dealers get blown away. Like there's just this path of destruction through our world in New York. And then when they're rescuing Jake, the mansion in which, uh, Jake comes through to, to Midworld, that gets destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then finally, when they get to Ludd, and, you know, Ludd is already seems to be, they've been on this verge of war for literally generations and generations and generations. 
but Roland is the spark that seems to set it off, right? So there's all these pubes that are getting killed, the greys that are getting killed, and finally Blaine warns them that, hey, he's going to destroy the city as well. And just sort of, I, I wonder, hey, where does this all fit in that Roland's this spark of destruction everywhere he goes? Yeah, it's a tough one. It, it It's like you... um the the old adage of uh breaking eggs and omelets and such but we had omelets for dinner um, tonight so that's quite appropriate oh, breakfast nice. for dinner my favorite <laughs> i guess mcdonald's new rules must have made you really happy <laughs> yes yeah it roland is despite his best intentions and the fact that he is an agent of the white as you know the the river crossing folks uh referred to him and yet another a connection back to the stand yep. he is still a a weapon i mean he is a walking weapon so you know when when you hand somebody a hammer then everything becomes a nail right so roland roland is a weapon who his biggest strength is shooting people it, it seems to be that that's how he's how most of his problems are resolved it's not like he wants to kill people he doesn't he didn't go into tall with the intention of hurting anybody like i said he just wanted a cheeseburger um i don't know the world is moving on around him so maybe some of these things are just a he there the dominoes are all set up and he's just the the guy that comes in and knocks the first one over so and that's certainly a lot like what happened in love yeah and i think that that's i think that's a big piece of it that things are starting to break down everywhere we want to go back to Yates. The center does not hold and it's all starting to, to come mm -hmm. apart. And, you know, it just so happens that the instigator of all this is Roland in some way. And maybe they're, or maybe the instigator is the tower and Roland's just, you know, along for the ride. But uh, it, it, it was sort of interesting that I've noticed in each one of these books, we're getting more and more destruction where Roland goes. Innocence be damned. But if you think of like the classic Western tropes, you know, like every time uh, Clint Eastwood kind of rolled into a town, sometimes he turned into a savior of the town, but he had to fight the bad guys. And that usually ended in this like giant battle that destroyed most of the town in the process. You know, so it's like, well, I tried to save you, but <laughs> he's always like every one of those movies ends in the a you know, gunfight, a massacre sure. in a gunfight. So. But I guess this seems more pronounced when whole cities are being destroyed. <laughs> yes. A lot of times you would hope at least that Clint Eastwood would take care of the bad guys, but, you know, maybe the rest of the town would survive and mm -hmm. not just be a burnt wake of destruction. <laughs> yeah. And and Lud was pretty complete. Of, uh, and Tull. I mean, although although so was yeah. Tull, and that was single-handedly yes. done by... One man. <laughs> uh, well, it's that time. Our favorite point of the episode, Jay. Fun, fun stuff. stuff. One of the fun things that I liked in this part of the book was that we we got even more mythology. Uh, one of the things that jumped out at me that uh, was the the golden gunslinger statue mm. that was on top of or on the roof of the yes. cradle of Lud, and the fact that you know Susanna noticed that it had an almost perfect resemblance to Roland. It was, you know, and some of that's like, okay, it's a cowboy. He's dressed like a cowboy. You know, it's not too hard to, to see that, but the way that she it catches her breath, it's like, it seems like it, it it's a spinning yeah. image. Like it, it's like, it's a statue of Roland, but of course it can't be him because this was made a 
thousand years ago before Roland ever lived and certainly before he ever came to the city, but she just chalks it up to that's just Ka, <laughs> you know. Of course. course. The Nazi stuff in this one's interesting as well. So the the plane that I mm-hmm. mentioned that they encounter early on, um, Jake recognizes it's it's a Nazi one. And then later on when they're when he's captured by Gasher and the TikTok man the TikTok man asks him, are you a Nazi? Mm-hmm. And it takes him a minute to figure out what's he talking about, you know? Yeah, because he, he says it like it's like spelled N-O-T-S-E-E. Are you a Nazi? No, I can see fine. <laughs> the first time I read that, though, I, w- I wondered if it was another reference to the uh, invisible man creature what oh, that, yeah. that Roland encountered, but he didn't have time to tell us about. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, I'll get to that eventually. <laughs> It's a tale for another day. Well, that um, brings me to another fun thing. What's that? Well, I'll, I'll, I think it was your fun thing. It's it's the uh, Back to the Future potential reference. Yes. Eddie says, I wonder what she'd think if I told her Ronald Reagan was president of the United States when Roland snatched me. Probably that I was crazy. And I'm like, it, this has to be a Back <laughs> to the Future reference. Of course, I didn't go and double check to see when did Back to the Future come out versus when was this book it was, uh, it was a year ahead of this book, so you might be right. That's like almost exactly the dialogue between Marty and, and Doc Brown when he's banging on his door in the beginning of the movie. Of course, this reminded me, and we've talked about this before, about how Roland constantly is telling them, oh, that's a story for another time, or I, I, I don't have time to tell you that. And, you know, we've now seen these folks hiking weeks and months across this, this grassland and mountains and, until they get to Ludd. And all they've got on their hands is time, right? They've, they're walking together, mm-hmm. they're camping at night together. And so we've determined that Roland's not really telling much of his backstory about what's, or what else is going on in this world. Everything's new to them. But at the same time, you would think that of the two lovebirds, Eddie and Susanna, would be sharing a little bit. Like, I would be intrigued if I was born in the 1960s and somebody who lived 20 years in the future, I could ask them all sorts of questions. Who's president? What happens in the world? What's the technology like? But Susanna doesn't seem to ask any of these questions. So it's never even occurred to Eddie to say, oh yeah, Ronald Reagan's president. You know that guy you know from the monkey movies? And uh... (laughs) Uh Bedtime for Bonzo. What do they talk about all day long? I don't know. It's like, maybe they just whistle like the seven dwarves. (laughs) Hey, look, kids. Grassland. Hey, look, another speaking circle. (laughs) Hey, look, City of Lud. Parliament. Uh, Big Big Ben. Ben. Parliament. Yeah. Another pop culture reference that may or may not have been accidental was a a call out to weird science. Gasher describes the ladder rungs as greasy, (laughs) which, of course, anytime I see the word greasy spelled or said greasy with a z i think of the greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty <laughs> ashtray weird science i don't know if uh king had that in mind but i maybe did. not so king does keep beating us over the head with velcro fly one of one of z zz top or again as they're known in england zz top one of their lesser singles there there's there's really nothing less representative of ZZ Top than Velcro Fly, which is a, a synth-heavy song, and maybe we could play a little bit of it here. Eddie actually makes an error 
in his discussion of uh, Velcro Fly, which he claims wasn't even ever a single. Why are they listening to this? You know, the the, the people in Lutter going crazy over the God's drums, which is the backbeat of the, the Velcro Fly song. Um, but in fact, ZZ Top did release Velcro Fly as a single in 1986, and it was the fifth single off their Eliminator album. And it, while it didn't chart very high, it did chart in the United States on the Billboard charts. It's because nobody says ZZ Top anywhere. <laughs> I say ZZ Top. Uh, also of potential interest to nobody, but um, the video of <laughs> the video for Velcro Fly, which is available on YouTube, uh, was choreographed by Paul Abdul, who you may know from her own successful singing career in the 80s and early 90s, or you might also know her from one of those reality singing contest i don't remember if it's the voice or american idol or one of them but i think it was idol anyhow velcro fly driving everyone in lud crazy any more fun stuff jay um i thought it was interesting when uh, susanna saw the gargoyles on the cradle of lud that they looked very much like dragons mm. and they were so realistic looking uh that um she was actually quite frightened of them and it made me think of could this be an allusion to Eyes of the Dragon? Potentially, yes. And that is a story that takes place in Roland's world, right? It might. I think there's definite connections between uh, Dark Tower and Eyes of the Dragon. It's been probably 30 years since I've read that book. Yeah, about the same for me. But um, because of the connections to the larger Dark Tower universe and that there are dragons, apparently, maybe the, this isn't a you know, a mythical creature that's carved into the corners of the building. It's an actual real thing that exists somewhere. And Susanna is justified in her in fears because it does seem so fearsome. Hey, they've mentioned vampires and werewolves and stuff. I wouldn't be surprised if there's dragons floating around. If there are invisible not men, why can't there exactly. be dragons? Exactly. All right. Well, I think that is all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And look for more exciting polls and questions at our Twitter handle, at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we finish Book 3 of the Dark Tower of the Wastelands, Chapter 6, Riddle and Wastelands. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. 